Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Unsheathed episode 89. We are live at Further Confusion in beautiful San Jose, California. I'm your host, Kyle Gold. And I'm, well, hold on. Do this right. So, who here was at Rainforest? Like, at, y'all know what's coming next, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For those of you listening at home, KM has produced a bottle of wine, is now open it with a corkscrew. Still opening it with a corkscrew. Just a little bit more. I almost got it. <laughs> and is filling his plastic bucket, complete with plastic shovel. Oh, it's going to breathe in there, don't worry. Uh, this is a bottle of uh, Rioja I got from Soren, actually, so... The first of many wines we'll be talking about this evening. I'm yes, sorry. why don't you talk about the other wine, which was a gift from um, Perry, I believe. Oh, yes. Did I, spot, did I pronounce that right? Yep. Okay. Yes, uh, this is a, a Chianti uh, Rufino, which I believe I've had before. And if I recall, I like this quite a bit. So thank you. Perry was also kind enough to bring a Coke Zero. Um, not from foreign lands, as we've uh, had in the past, but it is nicely chilled and refrigerated. Um... We also have gift wines from Fratus, yes. um, a Sutter Home Merlot. And uh, this really cool box that I brought the wine in actually uh, originally contained a different bottle of wine that uh, I got from Sparf, uh, which was a reason. I said that was a white wine and I didn't have anything to chill it with. Mm. So I did not bring that, but I did want to show you like this. And uh, yes, we also had a cool wine box from Sparf, which is at home with the wine that it was in. So. Um, one other thing uh, you guys may notice if you are in the room, although if you're listening at home, you will not notice it, uh, is Kit was unable to join us for this podcast. We have the talented B-Hop here. He is providing all the production. You might remember him from such podcasts as the FBA and voice acting panels here at Further Confusion. Uh, he has a panel tomorrow at 5, which you should definitely attend if you have the time. And even if you don't, we have a we have a card here, a New Year's card from Danith Tiger, which is, is um, it Danith? Is it Danith? Yes. Which has a bunch of Japanese on it. Yes. Uh, this is just the mailing address. It's from uh, Kagoshima. Translate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'll read his. I'll read his address on the air. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That's all it says. Is just. Is uh, okay. But yes, this is a. Uh, what does it say on the front? So, Happy New Year, of course. And, uh, you know, take it easy for another year. And it's got a bunch of cute little animal people drinking tea and chillaxing. Yay, animal people. Yeah. Well, thank you, Danis. Um We appreciate that. And thank you, Fuzzwolf, for bringing the, the postcard the last leg of its journey. Um, uh, what else do we have here to talk about? Oh, we have... Uh, B-Hop has given us some uh, FBA swag, apparently. So I'm going to open this. We have not seen what it is. Uh, so... 
such late Christmas. It is. Oh wow. Okay, there's there's two things. The smaller one is a poster who, of who here can do a good Cajun accent? <laughs> yeah. okay. Hold it up high so people in back can see. Yay. It says, Welcome to Biloxi Cap. I warmed the ball up for you. <laughs> and then we have a poster of yes. the thrust. Yep. There he is. With his with his big paws. Which very nice. You might have heard me squeak about it at some point or another. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, P-Hop. Anyway, I have not, drunk, has, uh, I have not it, drunk enough of my bucket yet. Yeah, go go work on your bucket. It has been as um, <laughs> as as many of you probably know. It has been uh, a little while since we sat in front of the microphones. Um, we've been trying to streamline our process somewhat and get a more regular schedule going again. We had a lot of disruptions last year, and the live shows actually really do keep us going. So we appreciate the fact that you guys all come out for them and uh, that you just kind of remind us why we enjoy doing this show and we have uh, missed you and we, we have missed you and we're sorry we miss you too we will uh, we, we will get we will get back on track in uh, in 2012 not back untracked as people like to say in the sports world oh which irritates like, the hell out of how me. do you how do you make that mistake learn to English well I think their I think their their rationale as I've heard it explained is they say um when someone's on a bad track, they're in a rut, so they need to get untracked, and that, it doesn't make sense. That's it's a not, reach. Yeah, it's it's also wrong. It's very it's wrong. wrong. If you hear someone say "back untracked," tell them they are wrong, and then hit them. <laughs> Do not hit them. Cam Hirazaki does not advocate violence. <laughs> anyway, I enjoy violence. I don't advocate it. There's a difference. Come on. Um, so, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit, and then we are going to take your questions. So get your questions in mind while we tell you what we have been up to for the last month or so. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'll start. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I've, been, I've been writing books. I've been keeping my little paws busy with, uh, with fiction. I have a book coming out at FWA in March where I will be a guest of honor uh, at the title of the book is Green Fairy. The cover and interior art is all by Rukas, and we've recently posted a bunch of that, or we've posted the cover, and I posted the synopsis of the book online. Uh, I'm very excited about this book. It's a... It kind of turned out to be like a, a young adult book, but sort of an older young adult book, so it's... A middling adult book. Well... Just an adult book? No, there's actually there's no explicit material in it. It is suitable for. They call nobody booed. I know. Well, <laughs> some people gasped. Um, but yeah, between that and the collations, I've been not writing a lot of explicit stuff. So I'm currently working on a draft of the third out of position book, which is making up for all of that. Um, but I'm I'm very excited about this book. There were a couple. Um, things I did. There's several different characters in it and several different plot threads and different settings and um, it's kind of a cool book. It's a gay, what did I What did I call it? A gay non-love story with ghosts and absinthe. Um, so it's that's going to be fun. Uh, as I said, I'm drafting the next uh, book in the, in the Devin Lee series, so there will be another one of those. Target date is next Further Confusion, so one year from today, you guys might have the new book in your paws. 
Um, and I've been sort of revising my alternate history magical collations book, which does not have sex in it either. But um, that one's going very well as well. And then I'm working on various short stories and other little projects, which I will announce when I have more definite information about them. So, so speaking of books and lack of definite information, I know everyone's wanting to hear. This an is Summerhill, from isn't me. it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Uh, no, it's. I've gotten some final specifications back from um, the publisher on that, on just a few things left to do. And uh, my part on it is almost done. Yay! <laughs> I've, like, I've announced having finished it like three times, and then it's just like, hey, it's like, congratulations on finishing it. I'm like, actually, it got unfinished. <laughs> it got on track. It got yes. on track, yes. <laughs> um, no, um, but I'm going to do my best to just finish this up ASAP, and it should be coming out sometime later this year. I don't know when exactly. Um, it's going to depend on production schedules. Sub- but, subject uh, to production and other variables. And other things. Um, but I'm almost done with it, <laughs> I swear. Um, and then I'll be able to, you know, then you can wait another three years for the next thing I keep talking about. <laughs> That'll be great. It's, um, it's worth the wait. It better be, or I'm going to be very sad. <laughs> there won't be enough. Be. There won't be enough buckets of wine in the world to drown my sorrow at that point. It will be. We promise you. Okay. Um. So, we've had. How's your How's your convention been so far? Uh, my convention has been really good. It's been very mellow for for the confusion. I'm usually you running around in like twelve directions at once, and I'm only running around like at seven directions at once at this one, which is like a nice change of pace. Yeah, no, I'm only doing five panels this year, which is down from last year's twelve. So, um, yeah, I'm 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 feeling very relaxed. I've uh, been able to hang out behind the sofa table, been able to chat with some of the dealers, um, and. Uh, it's been it's been actually a nice weekend. The, yeah. uh, uh, I've been on a couple writing panels, which have gone very well. For those of you here at the convention, obviously those of you listening at home, you missed this. But um, there's a panel tomorrow called How to Be a Writer, which takes place at 3 o'clock. So if you're interested in how to be a writer, come by and ask us questions. Um, and then at 10 o'clock tomorrow night, yes. this time, is it in this room? Uh is it? No, I don't. I thought it was in Willow Glen. It might be. Uh, upstairs in one or of the function maybe. rooms. No, it's not Willow Glen. I don't remember. Uh, if anybody has a program, when is our, uh, when is our adult I know what it is. I think panel. it's a 10, but San where Carlos. is it? San Carlos Room. Cool. Okay, so I that's don't just know where the, oh, is That's it? right next to where we were. Oh, okay. The, the yeah, I know where that room. is then. Thank you. Uh, at 10 o'clock tomorrow night, we will be discussing adult furry fiction. Those panels are always entertaining, um, especially when we have drunk people come in and giggle a lot and then run out. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That was hilarious. Um, so I know it's Sunday night. Um, we're all going to be tired, so it will probably be even more entertaining. Uh, so try to make it to that if you can. Uh, and, man, with that, who's got questions about writing or the fandom or what we've been up to or what we've been doing or what people we know have been up to or actually real quick i want to tell a little uh anecdote. oh yeah you have to tell you yeah to, so I have, a, I have a diet coke that was well, provided by km yes while while we were getting set up uh kyle asked me to go grab him a diet coke um so i ran all around trying to find something that wasn't diet pepsi um 
I hope no no sponsors are listening because we're going to ruin all of our endorsements. No, I but, hope uh, our, I hope I hope Coke is listening because fuck Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I'm sitting. Pick a side and stick with it. You I'm, know? I'm, so I'm standing there at, at the uh, at the bar here in the hotel, like trying to you know waiting for the 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 bartender to get me this diet coke, and the guy like sitting at the bar next to me like leans over and like grabs my arm and he's like, "Hey." Can you do me a favor? And I'm like, what? And I'm like, I thought it was gonna be like, can you explain what this whole animal thing is all about? Because you get that a billion times a day when you're at these things. And instead, he like leans in. He's like, he's like, can you sit here with me? I'll make it worth your while. <laughs> and I'm just like, and like, there's like this like little lady sitting next to him who like appears to like be his fag hag is like <laughs> my only guess. And she's behind him. She's just going. Like, <laughs> like, like waving me off as if I couldn't tell. Like this is a run and scream situation. Idea. And I'm like, actually, I'm like, I'm really sorry. I have something I have to, you know, go do. And he stands up and like leans in closer to me. <laughs> and he goes, "Hey, sell me your hat." <laughs> and I'm like, "No, like I need this. You know, it's it's part of a costume." He's like. I'll give you $20 for it. Oh. And I stop, and I think, well, the hat cost me, like, four bucks, so that's actually kind of a good deal. Uh, but, but I'm just like, no, like, I, I, I need to do this. Please stop trying to hit on me and buy my clothing off of me. For all I knew, next I was going to offer to buy my shirt for 50 I, w- I would have said you can have the hat for 100 Damn it! <laughs> this this is this is this is why I'm not a fox. You're too clever. I know. I know. Sadness. Well, I do. I do appreciate the diet coke. And uh, and the the Coke Zero from Perry came actually at exactly the same time. Oh, so I'm not I'm not playing favorites. Just this one is in a glass with ice, and this one's in a sealed bottle. So I'm drinking the glass with ice first. Uh, if you hadn't been like a super creepy drunk guy, it's like. Hey, how come KM never came back? <laughs> so welcome to Unsheathed. Yeah. I guess I'm doing the podcast alone. I have a text from KM who's run, like... Run show without me. Busy. Who's like, yeah. I'll be back in 20 minutes. <laughs> discarding comment, discarding comment, discarding comment. Okay, who's got a question? <laughs> Man, I told these people to have their questions ready, and nobody is stepping up to the plate. Oh. All right. We got somebody stepping up. Come up to the audience, Mike. Tell us your name and give us your question. Uh, hi, my name is Elian. Um, my question is, during isolation play, there was a scene where one of the characters underwent a, let's just say, interesting wardrobe change, and for some reason there was not a picture of that. There was much disappointment about this among people that I talked to about the book. Um, first off, why do you hate us? <laughs> Second off, how much control do you have over the pictures that coincide with your books? I think this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, as people who might have uh, been at the Rocky Mountain Furcon episode, or who have heard it uh, since it has been uploaded, uh, I did apparently direct plots to illustrate certain or at least one scene well but uh it was it was kind of it was kind of a your notes on the book said there had better be a picture of this scene and i said i agree and watch said oh yeah we're doing that scene so it wasn't really a no it wasn't really a question um 
So I'm going to take the second question first. The, the, the process kind of varies between, uh, between different projects. And I am happy to be as involved as the artist wants me to be. Generally, I find that I get better art for the books if I let the artist read the book and say, these are the scenes that jumped out at me. And then I can kind of go back and say, well, sometimes we want to space them out over the course of the book. Sometimes we just want to pick key scenes. Like, these are the important scenes from a dramatic point of view. Um, these are the scenes that I had a really strong picture of in my head. But that doesn't mean that the artist is going to be inspired to work on them. So usually what I do is I get a list of about 15 or 20 scenes from the, the artists. And, um, and I kind of go through and say... Yeah, you know, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, and we kind of winnow them down to ten. Uh, on occasion, I'll say, how about this scene, or how about this scene, if there was something I felt strongly about, and generally that works out okay. So, um, I think more specifically to backtrack, the problem with that scene was, uh, so one of, the, one of the weird is I'm going to get all sort of businessy and not like fun but one of the logistical things when you're planning out a book and you have a hundred thousand word novel and you have ten illustrations um, so suppose you have, you have a book and in isolation play there's two main characters there's one two three four or five maybe side characters um, so you want to make sure that each of the main side characters gets in at least one illustration. You want to make sure that the main characters are kind of equally represented. Um, and then you want to make sure that you're doing that across all the focal points of the book. So the problem with that scene that you're talking about is it wasn't a um, it wasn't as focal a scene as some other ones and there weren't a lot of the other side characters involved. Um, it was mainly just the, the one character period. And those are less interesting to illustrate because there's less going on. So that's why that one did not get a picture. Um, that's probably a little more detail than you needed. But um, no really, the, 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 the process of working with the artist is uh, one of the things that I enjoy a lot about the book because it's one of the first chances I get to have somebody else's uh, sort of, not literary critique, but just these are the parts of the story that felt to me like they needed to be illustrated that jumped out and so it's kind of cool if their list matches mine as far as these were the important scenes in the book and uh, for instance in Green Fairy when I was working with Rukas we had basically almost identical lists when we made up our, our lists of what was going to be illustrated and then we had to sort of uh, adjust them a little bit because there was too much of one character not enough of another but you know, then I kind of think well that was a, a flaw on my part with the storytelling because this one character that I thought was more important is actually not in many of the focal scenes for the book so um, but it was fun and actually all the interiors for that book look pretty cool and the cover is awesome so you guys are going to enjoy it and I'm done plugging my book now who else has a question oh there we go oh, we have a we German have a, Shepherd we have a German Shepherd dog in the back uh, who has to be careful of the, the actual dog in that's, is this the second dog we've had at a podcast uh, yeah I think so <laughs> <laughs> Me, yes. okay. Oh, I am being I am being accosted on behalf of Tom Brady. Oh, you must you, you you're being you're being asked to Tebow, I believe. I, <laughs> wow. 
Come on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Very well, if hang I on, must. Hang on one moment. I going to get a picture. There must be evidence of this. If this is the most embarrassing thing you do at a furry con, you're not doing it right. <laughs> All right. But you know, I'm okay doing that because my team won. (laughs) God damn, I turned my camera off. (laughs) (laughs) Yet. As I mentioned, I'm working on the next out of position book, and uh, I had a great temptation to include a strongly religious football player in it. And now, sadly, I don't think I can because um, people would say it was uh, <laughs> taken too closely from life. Well, you know, life imitates art. Exactly. Um, I've actually heard uh, the the uh, sports guy said in one of his columns he was doing predictions for 2012, and he said uh, somebody else had predicted that there will be a, a gay athlete outed within the next uh, two or three years, and he said I think there will be a gay athlete outed next year, and there will be a brief flurry of media attention followed by a bunch of people wondering why we thought this was a big deal, <laughs> um, which is pretty much what happens in uh, isolation play. So I'm hopeful that he's correct and that means we're both prescient. Which, you know, weirdly enough, the actual media hasn't stopped to say, wait, why is this whole Tim Tebow being religious a big deal? Yeah, well, it plays well in uh, in a lot of the country. I actually, uh, one of my friends who's uh, living in Los Angeles earlier uh, texted me a snippet of conversation where somebody else says, so wait, so if the Patriots win, does that mean we get to stop hearing about Tim Tebow? Like, <laughs> yes. Go Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, unfortunately, I think the answer to that is sadly no. No, probably not, no. Um, but uh, anyway. Especially all of the postseason analysis, I'm just like... Oh, my God. And the and all of the stuff for next year. Uh, I'm getting uh, tired thinking about it. You want to talk kinda, about Penn State for like a bit? The, a, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a big story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying the next line. <laughs> I know. Um, I think I'd go to prison. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would. Uh, if you want to know why we're laughing, go to The Onion and watch uh, the Get Out of My Face year-end sports wrap-up video. It's actually highly entertaining. It's funny, like, half of the audience groaned as soon as we mentioned the name of the school, and I think there's, like, blank stares from the rest. Like, if you don't know, it's probably for the best. Yeah, it's really, really. Uh, somebody else come and ask us a question, please. Not about Penn State. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Soren. Uh, first Hi, off, Soren. Cam, do you like the wine? I do like the wine. It's delicious. Would you say it's me outstanding? I would. And it tastes excellent in bucket form. Excellent. Uh, my other question is for Kyle. Um, how would you say that your writing has changed as you've moved more from writing as a hobby to writing as a career? Wow, Cam got the easy one. <laughs> 
Here, um, I'll let you handle this. <laughs> I really, I really kind of want, I really kind of want a, a picture of like me doing this thoughtful discussion of writing as a career while KM drinks from his bucket of wine. Uh, I think that's just kind of amusing. Someone can draw that. Wait, we got um, we have, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, this isn't the con where our, our sketchy artists show up. Like, yeah. Rainfirst is the one where where people... I'm not trying to coerce people into sketching during the con. It just happens that at Rainfirst, we have, like... It became a tradition at the convention to have people, like, give us sketches, and it was cool. I'm not saying that in order to get sketches out of people here. Do not feel obliged to do that. Thank you. Um, thank you for the question, Soren. I will... Uh, um, I, I want to say that actually um, the change from writing as a hobby to writing as a career actually probably happened about six, six-ish, six to seven years ago. Um, I just wasn't able to make it a career until this past year. Um, but there was a point where when I was writing um, as a hobby, it just felt like, well, I'm you know I'm making up these stories and I'm trying to tell the stories and I'm, and you know I would go through and edit and I would try to make them better and I would send them to fan publications and it reached a point in sort of the the er, real early part of the 2000s where I realized that I was not there, there was a lot more that I could do or, or let me put that a different way I realized that there was a lot that I was not doing and I wanted to try to explore. Uh, what it would take to just keep learning and keep getting better because I'm I am lazy as I've mentioned before and there is there are ways that you can improve your writing and become very professional with your writing all by yourself um, there are books you can read there are exercises you can do there are online web pages you can consult there are people you can talk to um, I ended up actually uh the chain of events was um, meeting uh, this gentleman to my right, this otter over here, Hello. and realizing that we kind of shared that desire to improve our writing, and then um, taking some workshops and taking some other classes, and that sort of talking to other people who took their writing very seriously kind of showed us what we needed to do to take our writing very seriously as well. And so from that point, um, I've tried to remain aware of the people that are doing really tremendously excellent stuff, um, be conscious of the, the work that I'm doing, and that the, the sort of the gap between that, but also be aware of um, my own accomplishments because if you if you just sit there and beat yourself up day after day and say, well, you know, I'm not as good as Kazuo Ishiguro, um, you know, honestly, for 99.98% of the world's population, you will never be as good as Kazuo Ishiguro, and I'm probably in that number as well. So there's no point in um, making that dog. <laughs> in no point in making that sole focus of your of your writing. What you focus on is. Um, okay, this thing that I've just finished, that was good in these ways. There are some things that I would like to do better the next time I, I work on something. And you keep those things in mind, and you do them better the next time. And it becomes a continual process of 
um, really setting your own standards to a place that is that forces you to continue to improve, but is also, also remains within reach. Um, and and that's a moving bar, because ideally you want to get to a point where you say, okay, I'm really happy with the way this turned out. Now, what could I have done better with it? And you know, you you move that, and ideally it'll be like a little better every time. Um, the thing that's been real different in this past year is I've started looking out at. Um, you know, when I when I had a, a day job that brought in lots of money, it was uh, not such a big deal that um, I'm like, well, I'm writing for the furry fandom, and the furry fandom is great, and I, I've gone on at length about how happy I am to be a part of it, and how, and that's why I've stuck with it. But objectively compared to um, mainstream professional markets, the furry fandom does not pay well. Um, that is changing somewhat. Um, the for novels, at least, you will not get the kind of advance from a furry publisher that you would get from a mainstream science fiction publisher. But between um, the growth of the fandom and sales and ebooks, it's possible for someone um, who is fairly who well, it's possible for someone at, at my level of popularity in the fandom to approach what you might make from a mainstream publisher just by publishing to the furry fandom. So, and that's that's. You know, kind of a business decision, which has been um, one of the interesting things that I've I've been finding out over the past year. Um, but I'm also looking at other things that I can do to um, to bring in money from other venues. Because if all you do is novels, then you might write. I mean, I might write two novels in a year and sell them. But then you know, you kind of want money to be coming in from other places. Um, some writers supplement their income with nonfiction. Uh, they'll write for various magazines. Um, other writers teach. Other writers do other things. I know um, a guy who'll give you twenty bucks for your hat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and ideally, what you want is reproducible income, so not like selling your hat, um, which you can only do once or or twice if you can knock the guy down and take it back and run. Um, and so, so one of the things, the thing that's really happened in the past year is I've started looking at um, at places, uh, at other other places to get money. And some of that is selling short stories outside of the fandom. Um, some of that is selling more publications within the fandom, but trying to balance it out. Um, last year was the first time I tried an ebook only release, which ended up getting printed by Fur Planet because I, as soon as I put out the ebook release, people were like, "When's the print version coming out?" Which um, and by the way, when I, I made the announcement of Green Fairy, it took four FA comments for someone to ask when is the ebook coming out. So um, I now have a web page for that, kylegold.com slash pubdates.html if you're ever wondering when the next things that I'm publishing are coming out, ebook version or print version or whatever, it's all on that page. Um, so that's kind of how it's changed as I've started exploring other things, which has been really cool as well. Um, I worked on a comic script for Heat, which I don't know if anything's going to happen with that, but at least the, the editors didn't laugh at it and say, go back to writing novels. Um, so that was encouraging. Um, talking to a couple of the other publishers in the fandom about various projects I could do now that I have a little more time, and just trying to turn that free time into uh, different avenues, because you have to keep trying different things, and eventually something will, something will click. And uh, 
So that's what uh, 2012 is going to hold more of that. And just to this will be a lot more brief. Sorry, um, I I don't write don't for a, yeah I don't write for a living, uh, but I do take my writing career and you can put that in air quotes if you want. It's refreshing. Uh, I, do, I do take my writing very seriously, and I treat my writing responsibilities you know, on the same level as like other life responsibilities. You know, doing my actual work and paying my bills and all that sort of thing. You know, it's it's, it's a very important thing, and I I try to treat it as professionally as I can. And I mean, I don't think I'll ever be able to stop what I'm doing and just do that. And nor am I sure I would want to. Uh, for that matter, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it is one of those things where you know, it, it it is a big sort of you know, like lifestyle commitment that you have to you know look at and you know decide you know how how far do you want to take it and how how seriously can you afford to let yourself take it? I guess mm-hmm. is um, you know one way to look at it. Uh, it's definitely, it's like I said, it's not, it's not a career, but it's more than a hobby to me too. At the same time, yeah. and I'm not sure if there's a good term for what it is, but uh, you know, I, I think the way I've explained it to people is, you know, well, it's, it's not my day job, but you know, you know, a writer is what I am. I mean, like, like, you know, that's what I do. Like, you know, if you, <laughs> if I look at my life, like that's, that's what I'm here doing. I just sort of have my day job to pay the bills to let me do that. Yeah. Cool. All right. This gentleman has been waiting patiently to ask his question. Okay. So I'm Ronnie Callen, and I have uh, three questions, two for KM and okay. one, for, one for both of you. Uh, one, uh, from a writer's perspective, I originally did not like writing in first person. I kind of detested it until I ran out of position, and then I kind of more or less to use that as a how-to guide on writing in first person, and now I love it. And so the first question is, how do you both feel about writing in first person as opposed to writing in third person and vice versa? And two, KM, when are we going to see another story with Raylan Sadakoy? <laughs> and three, are we going to see you rant about Star Wars in 3D? Ooh. Oh. Should, we, should we take the last one first? You, you, like, you had me all set up to have these like fun, serious answers, and you had to play the Star Wars Because The Phantom Menace in 2012... Uh, Attack of the Clones in 2013, Revenge of the Sith in 2015, and then we don't, or 14, and then we don't even see the original trilogy until 2015. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's, it's going to suck to have to sit through sh- three bad movies before we get to see uh, good movies in 3D, which I'm not even sure if I want. Um, I'm not really a big fan of 3D in general. Um, I thought it was pretty good in a couple of movies but beyond that I was never really that impressed with it and after a while the best thing I was able to say about 3D movies was well I didn't notice it so it didn't bother me and it's just like right. well well, if the best thing I can say is oh I didn't notice it so it didn't bother me then that's not a good sign of enjoyment and I think that the market itself is kind of speaking to that in a lot of cases I mean it used to be like 3D everything 3D all the things and they uh, they don't quite do that to that extent um, Jar Jar Binks in 3D. You know, it's funny. It's like as, as annoying as Jar Jar Binks is. Anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that he's the least of my problems with the Star Wars prequels. Um, but um, you know, will I go see them? I don't know. Maybe drunk. I mean, I, I might do that. Uh, 
As for as for when will you see another story with uh, Raylan, who's here in my badge? Um, I started writing another story, and then I got distracted by uh, real life, which uh, again, this whole day job that I mentioned nebulously sort of required a bit more of my uh, attention for a while, and I had to put that on the back burner. But uh, hopefully, you know, sometime in the first quarter of this year, I'll have a story up and ready to go for people to read, yeah. and I hopefully get them. Uh, you know, out with more frequency because he's a really fun character to write. And to dovetail into the first question, uh, he is a character that I write in the first person. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> Very smooth, yeah, slick, even uh-huh. like an otter, right? Uh, oh, Omer. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that you know, what do I think about writing in the first person? It depends on the story. I think certain stories call for third and certain stories call for first, and there are probably some that you could do either. Uh, in this case, you know, with Raylan, he is such a character, and his thought process as to why he acts in the kind of flamboyantly ridiculous way that he does is so crucial to, you know, the experience of the character that I think that not having it in first person would deprive the reader of a fun experience and deprives me of the fun experience of really getting into his head um, because he's a at least in my imagination he's a very he's a very vivid and real and and textured character beyond what you might see on the surface or what you might see in commissions <laughs> where you don't have any else to go by other than like okay hmm, <laughs> I think okay mm, is a good description of uh, your thought process on seeing a railing commission. Um, so it, it feels like we kind of get this this first person, third person question um, a fair amount, and I actually have something different to say about it this time, which is um, which is good. Okay, take uh, notes. What? Can I take notes? Sure. Okay. You don't have anything to write with or write on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so some of the things we've said in the past first person is good for stories that get really deep into the characters heads Um, out of position wanted to be a first person story because um, oddly because you had the two different main characters and I wanted to contrast the way each of them thought I wanted each of the sections of the books to have a stronger voice than they than they can have in third person, which is a little more inclusive and more traditional of a narrative style, but also a little more distanced. Um, one of the uh, one of the benefits of first person is kind of the immediacy of it. One of the drawbacks is you don't get to see anything outside of that person because if you're in a true first person setting then all that you ever see is what that character sees and hears and, and understands um, the fact that I was writing a book with two separate characters each in the first person meant that I could do stuff outside of one of the characters by making it within the experience of the other and so I kind of got around that limitation of the first person um, Green Fairy is an interesting book because one of the voices is in third person past tense uh, one of the voices is in first-person past tense, and one of the voices is in third-person present tense. So uh, I got to play with all kinds of different ones, and there's actually a reason for each of them to be in that format. Um, the main character's story is um, 
I wanted to be able to tell it at a slight distance from him so that I could describe things happening that he didn't completely understand and I wouldn't have to do it from a first person where I would have to sort of describe it through the filter of being confused as hell on what's going on. Um, the first person narration I wanted to be... Um, I wanted you to be sort of trapped within that person's viewpoint for that part of the story. And the uh, third person present tense had to be present tense because it's uh, got that immediacy to it. But I wanted it to be third person because you have to still have a little bit of of distance from it. Like you're not yeah. you're not sunk inside the character's perspective. Um, yeah, you're watching it unfold, right? Rather than and the immersing third, yourself in it. The, I, I will. I, I guess I could, I've, I've already mentioned in the synopsis that there's dreams. So right. the third person present tense is a dream, and third person present seems to me like the best format for dreams because if you've had that dream feeling, it's kind of like you know that you're you, but at the same time you're sort of someone else in the dream, but everything is happening very immediately. There's very little sensation of past and future, um, although occasionally you'll know things have happened or are going to happen. So, And sometimes you can fly. And sometimes you can fly, and sometimes you can't. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so there were reasons to have each one of those different styles, and they all... They, and also, the reason for them to be different is because it signals transitions between different parts of the book. But though there were di- there are different effects that you get with each style. And you know, third person past tense is sort of the most traditional storytelling style. But first person is kind of making a comeback. And some of the tricks that you can do with first person is that you can you can limit what the reader knows so that they discover things at the same time as the main character, or at the same time as the point of view character. Um, you can filter things through the character's experience to such an extent that the reader is kind of swept along with what the character thinks and believes until it becomes obvious that that's wrong, um, using it as a sort of an unreliable narrator. Um, you can, what other... Um, it's a lot harder to do unreliable narrator in third person. Yes. Yeah. Although or, it is possible. It is possible, but... Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah. Um, um, but wait, wasn't that? I, I'm thinking of. Um, uh, oh, is that one of those books I haven't read? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, it's a lot. E- well, anyway, Artist of the Floating World. I think oh, is the okay. one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I haven't read that one. But uh, it's a lot easier to have a character either lie deliberately or through omission in like a first person telling of events than a supposedly neutral third person perspective. Although. Uh, as Kyle mentioned, it is possible. It's just different and, I, th- yeah. I would say, trickier. And I don't know if it would specifically be called unreliable narrator as much as sort of um, confusing narrator. Um, because they don't tell narrator. you. Yeah, they don't tell you. It, in When you're doing that in third person, basically the, the, the third person narration doesn't tell you anything. And then so all that you get is sort of the, the character accounts of what has gone on, and the narration seems to sort of buy into those accounts until you hear something different. So. Um, that's kind of a very oversimplified explanation of how Ishiguro does it, which I don't completely understand, so I can't get further into depth than that. Just for uh, the record, it's not direct, well, semi-related. Is just because an author does something that you don't understand doesn't mean it was brilliant and you're just too stupid to know it. Yes. <laughs> Although in this case, it probably is. But. Well, yes, it depends on the author. 
Uh, who else? Oh, come on up. Come on up. Okay, real quick, did you uh, lift your microphone? Oh, bye. The, the nasally dressed gentleman in the purple tie. Hello. Uh, returning, returning questioner for your live shows, Argos the Corgi. Uh, Hello, Argos the Corgi. I have, uh, first of all, I have a lovely wine to present the otter here. <sighs> wow, I'm getting so much wine today. What did I say about this not being a livable career? <laughs> <laughs> it's a 2008 uh, Pinot Noir, uh, Gnarly Head. Wow. Uh, it's one of my personal favorite wines. But anyway, um, so my question is more towards... Uh, uh, actually, it actually can go towards uh, both of you. Um, as I'm sitting here... I, Sorry, I, I was looking at wine. <laughs> KM gets wine, I get questions. Yes. Is well, that actually, fair? I can, yes. I can, well, I can ask this question to both of you. I was actually thinking it more towards more towards Kyle, but now that I've been sitting in, in, in the back, I, I could probably go towards both of you. Both of you. But specifically, in, I... I'm getting into your Argea series. I'm, I read I read Vol. I'm reading Prisoner's Release. I have Pen and a Fortune. Mm-hmm. Thank I you. actually own a couple, a couple, a couple uh, more than a couple of your books now. <laughs> so obviously, writing Vol, did you realize that the world was going to be so big and, and immersive, and you could pull so much material out of this? And then I could pull, the, I could say the same for uh, Cam with his, with Summerhill, because I, I hear tell. Uh, Summer Hill is really uh, expanding in your head. It did start um, small and has gotten big. And, and then, it, yeah, it's no. But <laughs> wow, <laughs> really? <laughs> See what I put up with? This is why I need the wine. <laughs> oh please! You're just upset you didn't think of that first. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's 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 really an expanding world. Um, I. I don't really want to like compare you to, to uh, Tolkien, but I'm getting kind of the vibe of the world is really expanding in, in that sense, where you can really get a lot of material out of, out of out of the world that you've created. So, uh, how, consistencies and just how do you deal with with big worlds like that? Now that you have an established book with more than a couple of published books. Um. I, I get very embarrassed at Tolkien comparisons. Um, so I'm sorry. Thank you for not. Thank you for for pulling up just shy of the Tolkien comparison. I'm sorry, but it's a really good comparison, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Poor you're, not, you're not you're not as good as God, but I will say you're as good as Tim Tebow. <laughs> In other words, I could get my ass beat by the Patriots twice. I didn't say that out loud. Um, well. Let's sort of take your question in parts. Um, the first story that I wrote in the Argea universe was actually the Prisoner's Release, which was serialized in Heat 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized after writing that story that there was a whole book that might have come before it and that there was a whole book that might come after it. And so at the time I was writing Vol, um I kind of thought this is a this is sort of a cool world, and I was building it up and putting some thought into it um, enough that it could hopefully sustain more than one book. Um, and with uh, with Shadow of the Father, I decided to explore another different corner of it. So it is it's it's kind of building the uh, the short answer to the question is as I said before, I'm lazy. 
And it's a lot of work to make up a world. And so once I've got a world and I've got stories in it, um, if I think of other characters or settings, or if, if I'm thinking of a story, I'll kind of be like, hmm, would that fit into the Argea world? So if you've picked up um, Weasel Presents, the collection. I just bought it today, uh, yesterday. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, the last story in that has characters that are in no way related to any of the characters in any of the other stories, but that was kind of a that's the beginning of a storyline that I had thought of, and I thought, well, that kind of takes place in a medieval world. Hey, it could take place in Argea. It doesn't have to link to anyone else, and that way I already have the world defined. Okay. Um, that is why I have so many stories set in the Forrester universe, because um, you know, if, you're, if you've taken the foolish option of deciding that you don't want to use current United States place names for your uh, stories which are basically set in the present day United States um, then you have to make up place names it and just that is a easy. pain yeah. to do so now I have a bunch of cities and I can I have a map and I can kind of say hey this looks like it would take place in Crystal City <laughs> um, but again it San all San Francisco <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, like, uh, I know. I know. At least I like two Newport people in the audience got that yeah. reference. Yes, I wonder yes. if anyone else did. Um, All right, there we go. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of it is I've I've put some work into creating a world, and while I enjoy building up new worlds, and I have done it occasionally, um, I I like a lot more putting characters into an established world, and so having done that work. Uh, I tend not to do it again, and it's it's kind of a bonus because then each story builds up the world a little bit more and a little bit more. And if you plot them carefully at the beginning, so you're not too exclusive exclusionary about how you're you're setting up the world, then you leave yourself a lot of open space to where you know people say, um, "Wow, it looks like you really thought out the church in detail in Argea." Yeah, and I'm like, "Yes, detail." Of course, that is what I had in mind all along. Um, when I, I put enough sort enough of a skeleton there yeah. that I could hang things on it in various places, and kind of you know a lot of writing is smoke and mirrors and balancing and you know this is what it would look this is what this detail would look like if there were a lot of stuff behind it. I can just show you the detail and not the stuff behind it, which may or may not all be there. So okay, that's that's part of where that comes from. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with me and this monster that Summerhill has become that I can barely, if at all, tame. Still looking forward to reading it. Uh, I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. I've been, I've been dragging out the wait a bit too long, and I apologize for that. Um, it's honestly just a case of my imagination running away with me. Um, it started over two years ago. Oh, my God. Um, where I honestly just wanted to write a story, which for some reason I wanted to combine the idea of uh, dancing with a stowaway on a cruise ship and uh, otters that make you hallucinate if you lick them. And <laughs> I decided to write that as a short story. And I'm like, what, what, what possible framework could accommodate this story? So I thought of one. Uh, and as it turned out, that framework actually was able to accommodate a lot more than just that. And it was pointed out to me, it's like, you know, you you really owe it to this idea to do more with it than just have dancing and lickable otters. Uh, 
And so I did, and I, you know, wrote that as a book and fought with it and, you know, tussled with it, beat it into submission, then it beat me up in return, and we had a few rematches, and I finally got the book itself into a shape that I liked, and I deliberately wanted to end it on a note where it's like, well, I want to end it on a note where it's like the reader can, like, assume, like, and here's where it goes, and but like it, you know, could go off and like do all these awesome things after the story ended. And then I, you know, sat and thought, I'm like, well, what could happen after the story ended? And I was like, oh my god, I have to write that. And so, um, my current plan uh, is that it's probably going to be a trilogy, which at the current rate means I might be able to finish two of the books before I die. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave notes to someone to finish the third. <laughs> And uh, screw tape letters, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just one of those things where the more I let myself imagine the story and the characters and the setting, uh, the more like potential ideas come to me, and I just sort of sift through the potential ideas, find the ones I like, and keep going and keep you know building on them. And I really personal bandwidth is the only thing that will stop me from doing that. I think. Um this relates to something that I've, I've talked about before, which is constraint writing. Mm-hmm. Um, the book Green Fairy came about because FWA asked me to be a guest of honor, and their theme for this year is Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, they don't have a con book, so I can't write a con book story for them. And I'd like to have something to release there. And I was sort of sifted through my projects, and I'm like, well, what could be ready for that? And uh, eh, maybe this, maybe that, I don't know. And then I thought, you know, I should just write a story for them. And so I thought, I want to write a story that deals with the Moulin Rouge, but also deals with present-day, you know, Georgia. Yeah. And how do I do that? And the story just kind of grew out of those constraints. Because a lot of times the difficult part of the difficult part of ideas is finding something to latch on to. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of – I know when I was, when I was growing up and we, my parents were starting to – trust me to get through meals at restaurants without you know getting impatient or kicking the table or whatever um i always had trouble ordering what to drink because they would say what do you want to drink and i'd be like i don't know what do you have and every restaurant always has the same things but i had this sort of block about i needed to see a list and pick from the list because if you're just given you know a wide open slate it's a lot harder to to fixate on something but if you're given constraints then you're like okay it has to include this element and this element and how could i combine them and then the hard part of starting your idea has already been done Mm -hmm. and the same thing goes with continuing stories in an existing universe if you've written like um after i wrote vol i wrote two stories featuring side characters from that book which are both in prisoner's release Mm -hmm. um I wrote another story in that universe, which is in Weasel Presents, and it was just because I, I, I was thinking, oh, this event happened, and how would that affect this other situation? Once you have starting points, you have something to latch on to and something for your mind to kind of turn you over. just keep going. And it can, yeah, Stream and it can just keep going and going. Great. Um, with one exception, and that's Waterways. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. Nah. I had to say that. Nobody laughed. I did. Yes, thank you. This is why you're my co-host. Yay. My first bucket full of wine is gone, which means... <laughs> Drink the gnarly head next. I feel. I fear that we have started a horrifying tradition, by the way. 
I fear that we have awoken a drunken gay giant. I'm gonna. <laughs> the history people in the audience got that one. Um, I was just gonna say I was gonna get Colson to cover Bob Dylan's "Buckets of Rain," but make it "Buckets of Wine." Oh my gosh! Oh gosh! No! 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 That'll be our opening theme song. Don't tempt me. Buckets no. of wine. Buckets of wine. <laughs> um. All right, well, well that's, that's all. No, that, okay. that, that's all. That has given me great perspective. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you, you very, very much. Thank for you. The, the bottle of wine. Trot back to his seat on his short, corgi legs. Trundle, 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 skip, 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 trip, fall. I just have one more question. We have someone oh, in the back. We have someone in the back standing up. We'll try to give everybody a first time through before we get repeats. Nanda Korea. Uh huh. Apologies in advance. <laughs> Also, so KM, when are you uh, when are you getting in talks with artists for Summerhill? I'm I'm real curious to see where you go with that. <laughs> I love your little wrist. Thanks, <laughs> me too. So you'll be able to come and see this afterwards. But here is what was during. we ha- we we have a sketch from Further Confusion. Thank you to yes. Kamui. Oh my god, it's delightful. As is everything. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, geez, we have a second sketch. Oh, why? It's the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm. I bet I know what it is. About my writing? Mmm, bucket of wine. <laughs> wow, you look almost like Hunter S. Thompson in that. <laughs> I mean, really. It, it, Maybe it's just the bucket of wine in your face. I was going to say, you almost look like Michael Jackson from Smooth Criminal. (laughs) I'm leaning at the right angle. I think it's the jacket. Um... Any more questions or sketches? Uh, oh, the, the gentleman Wait, in the... Is this guy Spraff? I, I think Spraff. I was just going to say the gentleman in the Capitals jersey and the green feet, but... <laughs> Hello, Kyle. I'm KM. I'm Sparf. Hi, Sparf. And I have a problem. Um, Uh, We can't help you with that. (laughs) That's the podcast down the hall. Oh, actually, no, I can't help with that here. (laughs) Oh, thank you. It looks tasty and delicious. I have a perennial problem in my writing, and it's it's come from conflicting advice, and I've I've kind of talked to some other writers at the con about this a little bit, but I... I They're I, all I, wrong. <laughs> clearly, because you're the one with the podcast. Um, I I used to do the the classic writer mistake of front-loading my universe into into my work. You know, this is, this is my world. You will read it and you will love it. And then I, st- you know, I got feedback, and, and clearly that is not the way to go. So I, I started to read, and certain writers would do something along the lines. Of, and the best way to describe it is to give an example. It's like the the people are riding up on, they see the cathedral. You get a description of the cathedral, and then you have like a few sentences to a couple of paragraphs describing why that cathedral is important. It's the hist- a little bit of the history of the church and how important it is to the society. I do this. And I realize this is kind of abstract without seeing something I've written, but when I when I farm it out to people that I am getting feedback from, almost always I get 
this is all info dumping, you don't need it, and I'll cut it down, and they'll still say, no, cut all of this. Do I need to just find some new, uh, <laughs> some more critique uh, sources, or maybe is there some sort of uh, method that I'm, uh, some sort of key that I'm missing to where to put that stuff? Like, it's not, it's not all through it. It's, it's, I've really cut it down, but I still get that. So, yeah, the... It is good advice in general to not info dump. You know, wherever possible, don't do it. Um, for for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, uh, this basically refers to you know suddenly this big tangent in a story that pulls you out of the narrative so that. In order to understand yeah. what just happened, I must tell you about the history of cathedrals. Exposition. <laughs> There's uh, there is. Yeah. There's one I, I'm off the top of my head. I can think of one um, classic writer and yeah. one modern day writer who get away with it, and that would be Victor, Victor Hugo, Hugo and mm-hmm. Neil Stevenson. I think your mileage may, your mileage may vary on Neil well, Stevenson, yeah. but no, um, the, from from the one book of his I write. No, but um, the, the the there is a tendency to want to be like, oh, check out this idea I have. You know, like you know, this is why you need to know this. Uh, if your readers are still getting impatient with it, my suggestion would be to, you know, try to figure out, you know, it might not necessarily be the amount of information, but the way that it's woven into the narrative. Uh, the less that you can tangent it, and the more that you can organically fit it into uh, events and descriptions, the better. Uh, ideally, you should make the, you know, information transfer itself as as invisible as possible mm-hmm. uh, really, and that goes for a lot of things in writing really um, and you know there's a lot of things that you know, especially in fantasy works you'll have like the cipher character which is you know here's the character in an unfamiliar setting unfamiliar situation who needs things explained to him as he's going through this journey which is a very common uh, trope and whatnot. Uh, and in instances like that you know again you know making sure that the things that you're filtering through in this are relevant to what's going on and not just an excuse to have your characters be mouthpieces for your cool idea and not have it relate oh my (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of squealing outside anyway should get Barton Rouge back here um I compl- sorry, I completely lost my train of thought on that. Um, inf- no, no I, I, yes. Um, you know, to resist the urge to have your characters basically be mouthpieces for your ideas, and to you know try to stay as you know on track and, and relevant as possible um, is you know it, that trying to do that might lessen the complaints you're getting. Um, I've been sitting here trying to remember the 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 fourth thing and maybe someone in the the audience will remember but um, there's kind of a a sort of rule of thumb that sentences in a story can do um, can do one of four things there's reveal character advance plot explore setting um, and I've forgotten what the fourth one is Um, I had them I had them written down and I did not they're not here arouse readers (laughs) that's a specific kind of thing Uh. anyway there's 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 a bunch of different there's like several different things that that sentences in your story can do, and your sentences should be doing more than one of those at all times. 
you should your sentence should be revealing character and exploring settings. So you have how does a character interact with his setting? That tells you about the character. It tells you about the world, um, etc. When you're info dumping, your sentences are only doing one thing, and that kind of is what the readers are reacting to. So this is sort of a, a clumsy way of doing it, but whenever you want to explain something like, again, you know, you come over the rise and this cathedral comes into view, what about the cathedral is important to the story? Like, you immediately want to tell readers, well, the cathedral has, you know, stood there, it's been built since the days of the first kingdom in the year 940, and it's, you know, it stood through two great wars and blah, 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 etc. What's important about that to the story? Is it just details that are in your head? Do you need to tell the readers those things, or can they come out? If all that you want to say is, the cathedral's really old and it stood a long time, you can say, you know, the time, the, the time-weathered stones, the spires were smooth with age. Um, you can convey that impression of endurance without telling the reader the cathedral had stood for a very long time. I think description might be the fourth. Like, just describe yeah. the surroundings as far as explore the world. So reveal, reveal character, advance plot, describe surroundings or explore the world yeah it's um, like you know example of doubling up on that you know you know it's, you know if it's being revealed through dialogue by a character who is like you know particularly like reverent and pious and you know sort of getting across the fact that you know this character feels this way about this and is you know also bringing out information or and the best yeah. way the best way to do do this is through action yeah so if you can have something active going on like you know if they're they're coming up to the top of the rise and the cathedral comes into view and half of the party stops and you're like, well, why are they stopping? Well, because we're seeing the cathedral for the first time. Well, that tells you that the cathedral's important, that it has this sort of significance to people that just catching view of it is a reverent event for them. Um, if you see, you know, I, I, I can't brainstorm that much further, but you kind of get what I'm, what I'm getting at. Through reveal, reveal the world through the actions of the characters because the characters live in the world. They react to it knowing all of these things and if you can bring that out through action in a nice sort of concise way the readers can sort of extrapolate backwards to say well this is how the characters are behaving they know the world ergo I know no I now know this about the world from the way the characters are acting or from the way these things have happened um, so that would be that would be my advice. Sort of stay away from the, you know, the sort of wall plaque mounted in the middle of your story and just have the characters react the way they would normally react. Yeah. Also avoid the uh, the Douglas Adams-esque, you know, sidetrack, you know, explicative tangent that, you know, is done for humorous effect in that writing but probably does not fit in most other forms of writing. Uh, yeah, a lot of things Douglas Adams did were great because Douglas Adams was doing them. Right. Um, Many have tried sadly. to copy and very few have succeeded. Yes. The air in the exact way a brick wouldn't. Yes. Yes. That was funny when Douglas Adams did it. It is not funny or useful when anybody tries to yeah. imitate it. Like, he already did it. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because it was unexpected. It does not actually contribute anything to the story, to the description, and it's not unexpected anymore. So, anyway. 
Yes, you remembered that one. (laughs) I was was thinking um, about, like, you know, what's a good example to look at for how to successfully impart information like this? And once again, I came to David Mitchell again. Well, but having just read uh, the Thousand Thousand Autumns of of Jacob Zoo, where like it's it's this very unique and weird historical fiction setting, uh, which you know was actually a real place, but it's something that most Western readers would be unfamiliar with. And, you know, the book starts with the main character, you know, basically being thrown into this place in a new posting, completely overwhelmed and, you know, out of his league, much like the reader will probably be. And so it's through him getting his bearings is what lets the reader get their bearings as well. It's sort of like a proxy thing. And it's it's but again, it's extremely well done because it's David Mitchell. And, but and he and he's very rarely told you must behave this way because of this custom. Um, like one of the one of the first things that happens, and you've read this more recently, so correct yeah. me if I if I screw this up. One of the first things that happens is their luggage gets searched as they're entering. It's a Dutch company entering a Japanese port, and their luggage is searched. And he believes that. I mean, he has a a Bible, and he's heard he he remembers now that you know the Bible is contraband, but he thinks he's hidden it well enough that it's not going to be found. And you kind of just get glimpses of, well, now he's he's sweating because they're going to find his Bible. And the, the author doesn't need to tell you, you know, it was illegal at that time for Westerners to import religious artifacts into Japanese culture. You just get that from the action that's going on. And you hear references to some tragic incident that had happened, which keeps getting brought up again and again until you kind of get the full picture of it much later. Um and I think there was, and now, see, I've, I've forgotten now. He was worried about one thing, but there was the actual yeah, problem was so, a different. One. And then what happens is, 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 you know, the customs inspector is like, "Yeah, I have a question about this book we found in your luggage," and he's like, "Oh God, like, what am I going to do?" It's like, you know, the, the the captain made sure that we knew about like not to do this, and it turns out, you know, he has a copy of Alex Smith's you know book on economics. Like, can I? And he, the, the inspector asks, like, "I want to borrow this to translate it." You know, are you cool with me doing that? And he's just like. Yes. <laughs> so, <Go ahead. laughs> right. So he never has to tell you this thing is illegal. What he does is he shows you through the character action. You know, the customs inspector says, "Hey, we have a question about this book." And he's like, "Oh shit, they found my Bible." And you know right away that A, you're not allowed to bring Bibles into Japan. B, he knows you're not supposed to bring Bibles into Japan. C, he did it anyway. And that tells you about the setting and it tells you about the character. Um, so you get all of that from that one interaction. And then as David Mitchell does so artfully, it's misdirected and it turns out to be something else only then not also. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. it's, yeah. such, it's such a good book. <laughs> you should read it. Um, God, do you think if we gush about David Mitchell some more, he'll like, come down and talk to us <laughs> from Mount Olympus? <laughs> we, 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 we have plenty of wine. <laughs> I, I, I lived in Japan too. We have so much in common. <laughs> I've been to England. <laughs> you write English language books. I write English language books. <laughs> I wrote a story with three different character voices. That's like half of yours. You had a talking goat person in that one book. I do things that's kind of just like that. <laughs> okay, this is come back. <laughs> Let's get another question up before we embarrass ourselves further. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Thank you for Um, coming up all the way from the back. We appreciate it. No problem. Can you you reach the mic there? I I can. I'm a little short, but I'm managing. Um, I'm Taryn. And um, 
First, real quick, I want to thank both of you for, for doing this. Uh, y'all are a lot of inspiration and have encouraged me to be successful, and I really appreciate that. So, Good. Thank you. Uh, my question is about tempo and pacing. I'm currently working on a um, writing project. It's a short story. And um, it's kind of a murder mystery, um, psychological thriller type thing. And I'm having a little bit of trouble with the tempo and keeping things... Tempo's not on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that before I did. Uh, (laughs) Why are you showing me? He's the one who did that. He already showed it to me. Oh, okay. I was showing it to you. Sorry, Karen, go ahead. (laughs) It's okay. But um, I'm just... um, I'm having trouble with the the tempo of of the story, the the speed, and um, keeping the air tense. And I was wondering if y'all had any advice on that particular... Um, area more peril, more peril. Yeah, the uh, if you read, um, not that these are short stories, but um, back in my wayward youth, I devoured many Agatha Christie novels, and the way that you keep a murder mystery going is, uh, I mean, the problem with a lot of stories, not just murder mysteries, is the middle, um, because you also you always have great beginnings and you have this great idea for an ending, and then somehow they get through it. Yeah, exactly. But what Agatha Christie would always do is. You would have the setup, which is full of tension because you're reading a murder mystery and you know somebody's going to get killed. And so part of it is you're, you're getting, keeping the reader guessing, like, which one is it going to be? And sometimes it's really obvious. And then it's how is it going to happen? And sometimes the books just begin with a dead body. Um, but then there's always sort of the time period when you're not – you haven't caught the murderer, but some people are unwittingly – clued in or wittingly clued in and are trying to, you know, there's always some danger and then other people start turning up dead. And so, and you kind of want to space those out so that things progress but then other people are in danger and so the question is, will they be able to solve it before more people die? Um, So, she always kind of builds in that little ticking clock. Um, It's not specifically a ticking clock because there's no time limit, but there's always sort of that threat of danger, like this person, this murderer is loose and will kill again if we don't find him. As opposed to, you know, this guy pushed an old woman down a flight of stairs and presumably now he's done and, you know, if we don't solve the case, he'll just take the money and go live happily ever after and there's no danger to anyone. So, um yeah, there's sort of the, by now, sort of hackneyed piece of advice where, oh, if you don't know what to do next, have people with guns kick in the door, um, which I wouldn't necessarily say do that literally. But uh, when you are writing a story that is dependent on suspense, uh, like do not let the characters rest. Really, the only time I would give the characters time to rest is when you think the reader needs it and not the characters. Like if you think that like you've gotten to a point where like, the reader is going to be too like psycho emotionally strung out that they need to like slow down and and take a breather. Uh, you know, making sure that the characters themselves are constantly on their toes will keep the story moving, and it will force you to think of ways to keep things moving. Um, a good question to ask yourself when you get to a point where um, you think, okay, nothing much is happening right here. Is what could go wrong, and then. Think about, you know, well, what if this thing happened? What if this character happened to walk in on this other character? Um, or And then make it worse. Like, what could go really wrong? Like, what is the worst thing that could happen here? <laughs> what that if somebody walked in on us? That's a fantastic idea, actually. What if my mom walked in on us? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> what if we walked in on our moms? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> See, I made it worse. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, yeah, actually, thank you. That that actually gave me a fantastic idea. So I mean, it's a good it's a good general rule of thumb for fiction, not just like murder mysteries, but to try to keep up the pacing. And you don't want to overuse it because you don't want it to be like the perils of Pauline. But um, you you do <laughs> thank you the one person who <laughs> thank you is one that person. old. <laughs> uh, and, and no, actually, he's he's, he's not, and uh-huh. I'm not either. But um, but it's it's good to sort of say. You know, if something went wrong here, because you're writing a, a book of fiction, and so you can take a little bit of leeway with, well, is this strictly speaking realistic? Well, no, but it wouldn't be an interesting story. There's like hundreds and hundreds of stories that are realistic and boring, um, and there's plenty of true life stories that, um, you know, you would not, you would not believe if they were written down because they're so improbable. So you can take a little license and make things worse for the characters, really torment them, and um, always have always have something that the reader's interested in the outcome of, and um, keep. I'm trying to figure out how to put this. Yeah, no, uh, because you because you you can have you know once you have a murder mystery, you're like I want to know how this is done, but if you're not going to solve it in four pages. There has to be something else. You have to give the reader progress. Yeah. So. Okay. Thank you. Actually, and, sure. and before you uh, sit down, uh, I just want to embarrass you briefly here. Uh, Taran here actually uh, won the Rainforest short story uh-huh. writing competition last fall. So you can give him. A- Thank you, guys. Credit where credit is due. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, it's. Like I said, y'all were a lot of inspiration for that and a lot of motivation to be successful. So, thank you. It's cool. I've lost that competition twice, so. (laughs) (laughs) Not to him. No, I know, I know. Um, Anyone else out there? Didn't he have one more? Yes. I'm... Well, he won't have one other first time. I'm waiting for for people who have not come up yet to ask questions. You people are all too shy. It's kind of like when we were doing the thing earlier. Anyway, uh, trending. Um, as you guys have mentioned, one of the really important parts of being a good writer is also reading, and we've had a lot of other other offers. Now, where is the difference between like analytical reading, where you're sitting down and you're figuring out, kind of dissecting the story and figuring out how it's been written, how do these particular words evoke this particular imagery, versus being able to sit down and relax and just read a story and enjoy it. Do you find any difficulty once you've learned how to break a story down and analyze it, just kind of letting go and enjoying it? Uh, where were you six hours ago? Uh, <laughs> probably sitting in the lobby. There was just a whole panel on that. Yeah. Uh, we'll but, we'll uh, summarize it. Yeah. As, as was discussed, at a certain point, you're never going to not be able to be analyzing what you're reading, especially once you get into the habit of it. Um, but the short version is, you know, try to read things twice. Read it the first time to just read it and enjoy it and see what, you know, experience it. And then go over it again once you can, you know, divorce yourself from that. And then let yourself pick it apart. Um, it's sort of the efficient answer, I think. Yeah. But, uh, um, honestly, if a book's really good and really engaging, um, you have no trouble losing yourself in it. If 
the author makes mistakes that trip you up, then it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, I've had a couple books that I really argued with myself about whether I was going to finish or not. And but then uh, and then there's also like um, I mean both of us read The Hunger Games recently mm-hmm. and uh, actually so not strictly true I listened to the audiobook um, he read them and listened to the audiobook um, and while I was enjoying the narrative there were certain points where I couldn't help noticing stuff that the author was doing um, but it didn't diminish my enjoyment of the books and in thinking about it afterwards, you can kind of come up with, oh, these are things, these are tricks that the author's using. This is kind of a cool thing that the author did. Um, but while you're reading it, you know, you can you can still just let yourself go. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible to be going over something. And go, hey, you know, there there are some mechanics issues that I'm not fond of. There are some choices the author made that I find questionable and kind of wonder about. And at the same time, think, yeah, but this is still a really good and engaging story. I mean, those are those are not mutually exclusive. And it's also possible to say, wow, I keep sort of stumbling over things, and by all rights, I should be throwing this book against the wall, but I can't put it down. So, um, you always have, I mean, I always have an element of that sort of critical, like, how is this working going on in the back of my head? Um, the really good books. So, I think the last book I read where I didn't really, no, I did actually have one moment where I stopped. Uh, I read Holly Black's Red Glove. It's like the second book in her Curse Worker series. Um, and there was, there was one point in the book where I stopped and said, Wow, that's a lot of coincidental timing to happen right about there. But mo- for the most part, the book really carried me along. She has great characters, great plots, and and for um, Tyron to talk about pacing, um, like read the read Holly Black's White Cat and Red Glove because the pacing is like snap, 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 snap. The characters are never resting. Um, that's that's so true great for all for that. Holly Black stuff I've read, actually. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. But but those specifically are, are yeah. kind of mysteries. And I need to read those too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have them. I just need to read them. Those those are kind of mysteries, so it sort of fits the the profile. Um, For some reason, now when you're when we're talking about things to like and dislike, not directly related to writing, although I guess it is still narrative media. Uh, I'm just thinking of. Um, when I was playing uh, the game Eternal Sonata, I'm just like, this is the most beautiful, most boring game I've ever played. (laughs) It's like, this game is gorgeous. Oh my god, I don't care. (laughs) It's called Eternal Sonata. Yes, clearly. I got up to the point where it's like, I'm like, there was this thing, it's just like, hey, like, what's the deal with this? And I like looked up online, it's like, oh, well, in order to do that, like, you actually can't do this the first time. You have to play through the game twice in order to get this to work right. I'm just like, fuck that. Not doing it. Done. Um, we'll probably take another question. I think. Yeah, we have, I think we, we, we have probably have time. Until, like, we have, we have, yeah. well, we have the room till midnight. Yeah. I kind of want to keep the, the breakdown. Yeah. Keep the podcast about another five or ten. Yeah. Um, do we have a, another question? Anyone who's not come up yet? Uh, there we are. There we go. Hello, uh, my name is Mikase. Hi. I'm still interested in buying your hat, by the way. (laughs) $100. So, uh, according to a certain convention, being over 30, you're both gay muzzles. 
schicken. Excuse me. I believe that's our private business. Excuse me. Excuse me, gray muzzles. I think we, I think we might have to adopt that. That's wonderful. So, uh, in a in a fandom which is predominantly young, I would assume mostly college students. Uh, how does that affect your writing and what you push towards publishing? Uh, you know, which stories you decide to go with? Um, I don't know if I would use the word predominantly, but I'm not going to avoid your question by arguing semantics. Um, there, are, there, are, there's certainly an, a great influx of younger people into the fandom, and it's not so much a question of what stories I choose. It's not like I'm. It's not like I'm sitting here and thinking. Okay, well, I have this idea, and I have this idea, and this idea, but I bet this idea sells best, so I'm going to write that one. It's mostly a question of what idea is exciting me right now, and I write that, and I've been fortunate enough that the ideas that I enjoy are well-received by a lot of people in the fandom. Um, that said, I tend to write kind of, uh, as I said, Green Fairy is a, is a sort of mature young adult book, sort of 16, 18 age range target and above, but... Um, you know, Waterways was clearly, you know, late high school students. Um, right, right. And even out of position started in college students. So I, I've kind of had that sort of younger demographic in my stories to begin with. And that's an age that interests me for a bunch of reasons. And because if I write about, you know, coming out and really just anybody that, that age between like 16 and 20 is where people make a lot of choices that define who they are in life, where they start to realize what they can be and what they're going to be, and they can make choices that, you know, put them on the right track or go horribly, horribly wrong. And so that period has always fascinated me as one to write about. Um, I've written some stories with more mature characters that also have gotten, you know, some views, but in general the stories that I think about are people making decisions about the rest of their lives. So it hasn't... I wouldn't say that I've really changed what I write because of the composition of the fandom, um, specifically. I just happen... I'm just sort of, you know, lucky enough to be writing things that appeal to a wide variety of people. Uh, as for me, uh, first of all, anyone who has... Uh, who had seen me earlier in the weekend and has, is here now will probably notice that I've shed about three pounds of gray hair that I was sporting the last couple of days. And it's like, oh, I need to stop being old. Um, but, uh, aw. <laughs> aw. But um, this is actually something I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show before, but I don't think it's been for a while. Uh, one of my most popular stories, which sort of caught me off guard, uh, is a story that's very much about this sort of like midlife crisis event, which when I posted it, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of the people who are going to be reading this are going to be in like their early 20s. I'm like, I don't know like if they're going to be interested or going to be able to relate to a lot of things. And a lot of it's like, oh, like, you know, this is like, you know, 
this person's you know been in a relationship with someone for over 10 years it's like i think most of the people reading this can't possibly have ever been in a relationship with someone that long and i'm just like oh like no one's going to be able to connect to this but people really 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 liked it and you know a lot of people did identify with it on a lot of levels which surprised me but in retrospect it still made sense because i think that there are a lot of things that you know a lot of themes to you know personal life family life romantic life that are just sort of universal and they Mm -hmm. sort of transcend age uh and i don't think i was counting on that uh the other thing is that if there's anything i've learned from uh, having been in this fandom for uh over 10 years now is that uh there's there's an ageless quality to what we enjoy about this i mean i mean certainly you know I don't think there's anyone, you know, in this room who would, you know, disavow ever having, you know, enjoyed childish things like, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and whatnot. I mean, I think there's going to be a part of us that always uh, is is going to love that. And so you're saying we're eternally young. <laughs> Forever young. <laughs> I'm going to start taping, taping my crow's feet. Um, <laughs> do otters get crow's feet? Well, they have webby paws. I was going to say only if the crows are really careless. <laughs> <laughs> and and the otter is a psychopath? Yeah, well. No, um, uh, no um, I write a lot of... Uh, American you know, psych like, otter. No, like, so like Summerhill is very much science fiction, and I don't think that science fiction by itself is very age-dependent. Um, like... Doctor Who is a great example of that. You have people who have been watching that show for 30 years and people who have just gotten into it in the last handful of years and it still resonates with people of all age brackets and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think that a lot of furry stuff is the same way. Um, you know, it's, um, there's, you know, and, and if, you know, even if you haven't been to college in 10 or 20 years, there's always a part of you that's going to, you know, remember, you know, what it was like to have been in that situation. And you'll still enjoy reading stories that are set in that, you know, part of life, you know. And, you know, honestly, I think this is true of all, I mean, I'm, I'm just thrilled that there are young people who still want to read. Um, thank you, J.K. Rowling. Uh, but uh, and us, well, yeah, and us, but mostly her. Um, but I think, from my experience, I think it's it's a mistake to pigeonhole younger readers as only being interested in certain kinds of stories. And that kind of follows on to what KM has said. Um, I think. Being a being gray muzzles according to certain definitions is is very helpful because we have a certain perspective looking back on life, and we don't have the perspective of someone who would be you know much older. But for that for that period, and maybe that's why I kind of I like writing about that period of life is because I'm not far enough past some of the later years to have what I feel is a good perspective on that. But I can look back at my my own, you know, 16 to 20 age and say, okay, if I had made these decisions, I know a bunch of people who made decisions like that, and this is how they turned out, and this is how this happened. So you you have kind of a more balanced, objective perspective as opposed to when you're going through that, when you're leaving home for the first time, you're going to college, you're discovering your sexual identity, you're 
experimenting with uh, drugs and college courses and jobs and relationships and just everything is new and different and scary and wonderful and you have no idea what's going to happen at the end of it. And I kind of enjoy writing about that because I can say, well, okay, at this path, here is what happens at the end of it. And I think that holds a certain appeal for people because it, it's sort of a, you know, a what if. And, you know, again, I'm not, I don't, I'm just in, interested in that time period. I don't tailor it to the audience. The only thing I tailor to the furry fandom is that all my characters are animal people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I write what I'm interested in. And so. yeah, It's kind of like when I look back at my own sort of like, you know, young adulthood and you know, younger days in retrospect I think god i could have been so much gayer yeah yeah I, I think i think that's where a lot of Raylan comes from where it's like hey if i had been as gay as i am now back in this age i'd probably act like this and or, or not and but. you know also i mean that's that's another element that actually i hadn't really thought about until you said that just now but uh, i phrase it in a joking way but it, it's a serious the point fact, i mean the fact that we include adult scenes in our stories sex um, yes, I see. No, never mind. No, um, no, just no. Talk is, uh, you know, that's also something that the uh, you know younger demographic in the fan, uh, clearly nobody below the age of eighteen, um, is. They're Ever. all are all are all very interested in, and adult stories have a sort of generally higher. Um, Circulation than non-adult, just not uh, sort of anecdotally not always true. But you know, the fact remains that the most successful furry story site for a long time was a story site specifically devoted to adult fiction. So, um, but again, fictionstar.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but again, uh, you know, it, that just happened to be what I enjoyed writing. And that happened to be what was popular, and it didn't really necessarily dictate so much. I mean, the last two books that I wrote before the one I'm writing now, as I said, had have no explicit sex in them, and people still seem excited by them, and they they still look forward or looking forward to them. And I, you know, make a point of saying there is no sex in these books, and people are like, "That's cool, whatever." So. Um, yeah, I guess that's just sort of an, an addendum that, you know, yes, I, I, we understand that these things are popular, but um, also I, I believe there's not much sex, if any, left in Summerhill by this point. I, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, it's I would not consider it an adult novel. In fact, I don't even think it's going to be branded as such. Yeah, I don't think I, it will. I, sp I spoke to them about that. I'm like, does this constitute enough to make it like an 18 and over story? And I don't think it does, okay. so, which is good. So, yeah, I mean, there is there is a place for that, clearly, as I'm writing another book with, you know, all full of porn again. But um, And it is nice to get people saying, you know, we I enjoy those parts of your stories as well. Yeah. Um, but I've been I, I'm, I'm very grateful that I've been able to write the things that interest me and that I have an audience that's receptive to them and I, I haven't necessarily like tailored what I write I don't sit at home and go you know this is the formula to a successful furry book <laughs> yeah. and just to sort of and I'll be brief on this because I know we're running short on time yeah. but um, 
some more uncharitable folks might level accusation that, oh, we're, like, shoehorning sex into what we write in order to, like, you know, you know, circumvent Get the path you. of popularity, right. you know, and whatnot. And, you know, that's really not the case. Like, you know, we're saying here, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this story just doesn't happen to be, like, with Summerhill, like, it's a science fiction adventure story. I mean, I could throw a bunch of sex in there for the sole purpose of being able to tell you, hey, buy this, it's full of sex. Right. Uh, but, I mean, at that point, that would be, yeah. that would be selling out at that point. And, uh, and like, we were just talking about, uh, and I even used uh, the Raylan stories as an example. Uh, the one story I have up there, you know, he's clearly this very sexualized character, and this story is completely about his sex life, but there aren't actually any explicit sex scenes in the story, <laughs> which I don't know if, how many people notice that, because people are like, wow, like, this story is really hot. And I'm like, yeah, but did you notice that nobody ever actually has any sex in it? And but they talk about it, right? They do talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so that's and why it's there, 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 there is, there is a... <laughs> There is a portion where there is a sex scene going on, you know, while he's on the phone. But I'm just describing the phone conversation, <laughs> and not anything else is going on. And you don't really figure out until afterwards, like, oh, hey, like this is what's going on while he's on the phone because that's the way he rolls. Right. right. Um, and with uh, with Green Fairy, when I was working with Rukus on it, um, mm-hmm. those people who are familiar with Rukus's work know that she's not afraid to include sex in her own stories. Um, but the first thing that she said to me was, I'm really glad there's no explicit scenes in here because I don't think the characters warranted it. And I said, no, I agree, and that's why there aren't any in there. So it's the kind of thing where when it fits the story, it's great. Um, if you're writing a story about a um, a uh, young adult who is trying to come to terms with being gay, then sex is a part of that. And if they... You know, having their first experience, how that feels, and everything—that's something that you almost would be cheating the reader if you just sort of skimmed around it. But in a story where there doesn't have to be any, you know, we don't—that's you what you said about my tentacle sex story. That <laughs> <laughs> I was cheating the reader by skimming around it. And to be fair, you were right. Well, yeah, yeah, of course you were. Um, thank you for your time. Sure, no, thank you for the question. That was a good question. Um. We'll do if people still have questions in the audience. We will do quick answers to them. Come mini, on, up. mini lightning round. Yes. Will there be more um, unsheathed presents? Oh, I'm sure that they'll sideline me with something eventually. Yes. <laughs> All right. Got a good quick question. Um, oh, out of position in isolation play. Is there an actual name for the trilogy that you're making, or just the two books and the third book in process? It's not going to be a trilogy. Oh, it's not going to be a trilogy. Okay. <laughs> Even better. Even better. Line up. Well, first off, quick comment. Cam, I like the little gay bracelet you had on your arm. That's adorable. And secondly, are your Super Bowl picks still in the picture? Mine are. Uh, yeah, mine are. Yeah. Yep. And I'm also going to cast out a pick for San Francisco Patriots. That would be an exciting matchup. I would like to see that, actually. Uh. Sometimes you guys keep teasing like which podcasts you listen to, and you never explicitly mention a name. So, what are some of the podcasts that you guys listen to? Um, wow, lately I haven't really had a lot of time to listen to any. Um, the one that I've been catching the most is actually, and I've mentioned it on the show before, is uh, it's called the Order sixty six podcast. It's about Star Wars gaming. <laughs> uh, um, I know at least one person in the audience is staring at me with hate eyes right now. Savage Love. Podcast. Oh no, and I listen. I listen to Bee House podcast. Actually, I do. I do. I, in fact, I was talking to you about it, so you know I'm not lying. 
You're on, you're on this podcast sometimes. Yes, that's also true. Um, <laughs> Savage Love Podcast, This American Life, um, Stuff You Missed in History Class. Um, mine's less of a question and just more of like a slightly comical thing. But um, Ooh, on the subject of, comical. of uh, Tim Tebow, um, he's a self-proclaimed virgin. And I just, for your own relief of frustration and aggression with your writer's imagination, just wanted to open up the opportunity for you to think of him being placed in the middle of FurCon right now. Just for your own. I, I already have a uh, furry quarterback sex story that I want to write. So if I want to <laughs> go to that for in- inspiration, I will let myself do that. I actually think, uh, to, to treat it sort of seriously and not comically, I actually think that from what I know of him, he would just he would still genuinely have a good time somehow like he would talk to people and be like this is fantastic what you guys all are doing this is great and he would like not see any of the adult stuff at all like it he would you could you could be staring at a picture and it would just be like this i don't know blank image of the holy ghost or something to him <laughs> so i would like um, to say completely unironically that i do respect tim tebow as an athlete yeah, I, I, I'm. I will agree with that. I know there. I have a fan who keeps pointing out to me work that he does with Focus on the Family, who is in a, a terrible organization. But um, you know, in general, he seems to me to be the kind of the kind of person that I wish more. Uh, that I let me back that train up a bit. The kind of person that I believe most Christians are, and that. The Christians who give a bad rap to organized religion are generally the self-motivated ones that have their own TV shows or TV channels or ministries and so on, and that very few of them are the ones that actually go out of their way to help people. But those Christians are the ones who don't make headlines. Um, I believe those are the majority of the people out there. And so I think he is actually a good representative for a positive example of a religious person. And I, you know, focus on the family stuff aside, uh, I'm willing to give him sort of a little bit of a pass on that. Also, it's worth pointing out that Tim Tebow is not the one flaunting his religion. It's the media that's making a big deal out of it. Well, Uh, there was his mom. Well, yeah. I mean, at the press conference, he says, I, I have to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but a lot of people say that. I, I, no, no, actually, no, I, I saw a UFC fight earlier tonight, where, and actually it was a tear and comment to this. He's like, I want to thank, you know, my Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, you just, like, like windmill kicked a dude to the head and knocked him unconscious. <laughs> and, like, back me, oh, wait, wait, who is, who is, who is, with, yeah, back me up, that happened. No, happened. And, and, he's, and he said, like, he specifically said, like, I want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just saying, like that, that's not an exclusively okay. Tim Tebow True. thing. Um, I will, I will say quickly, um, because we're we're getting sort of snarky audience members back there telling us it's time to go home. Um, I think I think we've crossed into one of the three things we're not supposed to talk about. But uh, I, I heard a, a radio announcer talking to an athlete, and the athlete said something about, you know, I just thank, I thank God for the you know whatever the, the the game that we won last week or something and the radio announcer said now let me get this straight are you saying that god actually cares about who wins games and that he intervened to make sure that you guys would win and to you know the, i don't remember who the athlete was but to his credit he said well no he kind of stammered a bit and then said what i mean is you know god gave me the strength to be the best person that i could be and that's what enabled 
you know me to play my best and my teammates to play their best and to you know pull out a victory so as much as people kind of make fun of it it's become a cliche now to say well you know jesus intervened on the behalf of the the athletes who are thanking god but um and saturday night live did a very funny skit with that which you guys could go look up on hulu i think um but uh but yeah so anyway tim tebow okay guy for now and um our super bowl picks are still in play i think both of them yeah i said uh what did i say i said green bay patriots yeah i think i said you said Ravens, I said Green Bay. Raven, I, I think I said Ravens, Green Bay. Yeah, yeah. you did. Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping for Ravens, Niners, but I think I, I think I may have to settle for Ravens, Green Bay. I was going to say, hey. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was going to say it's okay as long as Aaron Rodgers ends up flat on his back, but then you know that might be just my personal I'm fantasy. I'm just thinking of like the. the, the, the I just say I just like the, the onions whole bit about you know Aaron Rodgers promises to make the season interesting by killing himself. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, so we should wrap this up. We only got the room for another 15 minutes, and this podcast has gone on very long. But I think it's okay because we hadn't done one in a while. So um, you can catch our podcast on uh, iTunes which you already know from listening to it um, we are unsheathed on Fur Affinity uh, you can find me Kyle Gold on FA as Kyle on So Furry as Kyle on Twitter and LiveJournal as Kyle Gold and if you guys have not um, seen the books that I've written they are available up at the SoFolf and Fur Planet tables in the dealer's room on Sunday and on all of the social sites that Kyle just mentioned, you can find me as Cam Hirasaki, and uh, I'm in books too. You are. You're in. Heat? I see. I'm in Heat. I'm in Fang. I'm in Ag. Never stops being funny. Yeah. <laughs> that will. God bless you, so full of press. <laughs> um, and uh, I oh, think I've, I've had like. Be, three quarters of a bottle of wine all by myself, haven't I? Yes, yes. Um, I'll be upstairs tomorrow um, to sign. We will be doing a panel at 3 o'clock on how to be a writer. And we and KM and I will be back in the San Carlos room upstairs at 10 o'clock tomorrow night to talk about adult furry fiction, which nobody really asked us questions about. We had to kind of shoehorn the, uh, the sex into the answers. Actually, while I was on my way to get you that Coke, I ran into another couple in the convention center, and it was really funny, because one of them stopped, they're like, hey, I remember you. You were on the adult fiction panel last year. And it's like, oh, it's so cute that that's where you know me from. <laughs> <laughs> but adult fiction, always a good time. Um, thank you guys so much. The, this I know this... Uh, podcast was booked opposite uh, a lot of other stuff going on tonight there's dances and frolics and uncle kage and two and whatnot my karaoke dj is running the karaoke opposite of us and um and yet you came down here and uh we we pretty nearly filled this room so that's fairly awesome so thank you guys so much for coming out here and reminding us why we love doing this show um you guys are all awesome thank you to b-hop for filling in on production um all of the all of the ways in which this podcast sounds great are due to him all the bad things are due to us leaning too close to the mic or too far away from it or knocking it over with our buckets of wine not that that happened and thanks to the magic of editing it didn't thanks to the yes the magicking of editing if you didn't notice anything that's because of b-hop 
Um, and thanks to Further Confusion again, actually, for, for giving us a room in which to have this podcast. We do appreciate the time and the uh, and space. And uh, they've actually they've the move into the convention center has uh, has gone pretty smoothly as far as I've been able to tell. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, this We're, is certainly a bigger room than we had last year. Yeah, so like by about a factor of two, like all very all very good. We had last year we had a bunch of people standing at the back. Yeah, but I remember it was that. totally worth it because of Dick Power. Yes, <laughs> and if you guys miss Dick Power, oh, you miss something good. Thank you guys all. Uh, did I did I forget anything? I always feel like I'm forgetting did, something. Did we already thank the setup crew? Uh, thanks to our setup oh, crew. Soren's shaking his head no. Did you mention blowjobs? Oh, we didn't mention blowjobs. Yeah, and cake. Done. I <laughs> thought I did at one point. Yes, because he called us gay muzzles. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I so, said what we do with our muzzles is our private business. So yeah. that was close. Um, oh, uh, yes, thank you to our, our setup crew, which included B-Hop, uh, Jericho Otter, Fraudis helped. Um, oh, Feck. Oh, Feck, yeah. Yes, Feck also helped. But no, thank you all for coming out to listen to us oh, ramble thing to watch me drink wine out of a yes, bucket. Yes, uh, thank you to Fraudis and Perry and... Um, Sparf, Soren, and, and Argos. And, and B-Hop for the posters. Yes. And... Uh, all right. Uh, we have business cards up here if you guys had uh oh i forgot to ask how many people this is, is this your first unsheathed podcast that you've attended wow. wow awesome now how many people had never listened to us before uh, shut put your hand down <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully we made a good impression on you hopefully you guys will be back if you want um cute business cards Come on up and get some. They involve pantslessness, and if that helps bait you up here. They do. Um, thank you guys again so much, and have an excellent rest of your further confusion, and I hope everybody has a wonderful 2012. Yes. Woo!